Today's story is one of accidental discovery, perhaps the biggest accidental discovery story in the history of the universe. <gasps> Bold claim. Well, definitely about the about the history of the universe. <laughs> but first, welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising and brilliant discoveries, ideas, and people. I'm Marin Hunsberger. I'm Greg Foote. For this episode, I am the storyteller. And I have no idea what's going on yet. Helping me tell the story this week. Uh, let me introduce my guy. This guy is great. My name is Avi Loeb. Uh, I'm a professor of science at Harvard University, a chair of the astronomy department there, and the director of two centers, uh, the founding director of the Black Hole Initiative, and um, the director of the Institute for Theory and Computation. I think that's the longest title of anybody I've ever heard. That's, uh, that's an amazing CV. <laughs> well, I did not uh, reveal a few other titles uh, that, that I have, uh, but the titles are not really important. Uh, I'm still focused pretty much on research. Um, his research, by the way, is into the formation of stars in the early universe. <laughs> uh, and he describes it absolutely wonderfully as... The scientific version of the story of Genesis. Love that. Casual. Man, what a guy. Yes. See what I mean? That's so funny. The titles aren't really important. It's about the research, which is just, I don't know, the fundamental nature of our universe. I had such... This was, this was such a pleasure to be able to um, talk to him for like, you know, hour, hour and a half. What oh, a man. And um, he also researches black holes, gravitational waves, and the small question of, are we alone? Oh, simple. Simple. So, uh, but we're going to get to some of those big questions later on. The story starts, today's story starts in 1960s United States. Groovy. And a series of large metallic balloons are flown high up in the atmosphere. And they're part of a new system to send signals across long distances. So what you do is you um, you fire weak radio signals and uh, at these balloons and they bounce off the balloons and then they go down to giant antennas on the ground that collect them and they amplify them. Um, a system that's known as ECHO, one of those giant radio antennas, is built at Bell Labs in oh, like, Homebell, uh, New Jersey. Of Bell of the Telephone? Alexander Graham Bell? I believe that is where Bell Labs gets its name from. So this giant radio antenna is six metres wide. It's known as the Holmdel Horn Antenna. Sadly though, two years later, 1962, a different satellite system called Telstar is launched mm. and that essentially puts Echo out of business. Aww. However, someone has their eye on using the antenna for something else. Just requisitioning this piece of equipment? It's time to meet one of our two main characters for this story, Arno Penzias. Arno! Now, his PhD was all on amplifying and measuring radio signals from the gaps between galaxies. And he wants to use this antenna to capture those signals. And there's another radio astronomer that comes to Bell Labs that same year wanting to do something similar. He's called Robert Wilson. And together, Penzias and Wilson get their hands on this antenna. They up. They get it all set up, they turn it on, and they get this weird, annoying noise. <laughs> right, there's this noise, and they've got to figure out what it is. Okay, here's my question. Mm. Question. Mm. What's a gap between galaxies? There are gaps between galaxies? Well, I guess if you zoomed in, you'd see that there are other galaxies beyond the galaxies. <gasps> um, but yeah, they're just trying to collect all these signals. And what does that tell us? Let's start with how a radio telescope works. Over to Avi. Right. Radiation can have uh, different frequencies or wavelengths, and we can see them uh, on the old uh, dial of uh, a radio. Uh, basically, by moving the dial around, we are uh, switching frequencies, moving 
to either higher frequencies or lower frequencies where stations operate. And basically what we are doing is listening to radiation at different wavelengths. And uh, as you go to very long wavelengths, that's called the radio band. And uh, the instruments used to detect uh, waves, uh, electromagnetic waves in these bands involve uh, radio telescopes and uh, arrays of uh, radio antenna. And basically what happens is when the wave passes through the telescope, uh, it induces currents of electrons. Electrons move back and forth in these antenna or dishes. And uh, this current can be recorded. Got it. So, so when he was referring to like frequencies on your radio, if you imagine you know, the sound or light or whatever kind of radiation it is as a like a squiggly line. Mm -hmm. The frequencies are like how close together the peaks of the squiggles are, like wavelength yeah. How many stuff. there are by unit time right. is the definition of right, right, per right. second is your frequency. And they carry like different, you, you measure them in different ways based on what frequency you it is. You have to dial into them essentially right. with that radio system. Right, right. So it, it's like a giant ear, but if you're imagining a classic dish, a concave dish, you know, like a, like a dish shape. Like, like what you would have on your, your house to get TV or something. Yeah. If you're imagining that, that's not the case. Okay. Look at this. Here's a picture of it. Oh, jeez, Louise. It's <laughs> okay. Wait, there's like a little shed over to the side on the right. And then it's got just like this massive horn. Yeah. So it's called a horn antenna. Oh, geez. And when I say it's like an ear. It looks like an ear as well, like an ear sticking off. It does. It does. Like a gigantic like magnification of someone's ear sticking off the side of this little house. I love it. That's so It is cool. like someone with a horn into their ear. Yes. That's and you know, what it, is. it looks like what I would have built as a child if I was like, let's build a, an observatory when I was eight. And it's like this ramshackle, like treehouse looking thing. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the reason it's that shape is to eliminate any radar or any radio broadcasting that's happening nearby. That receiver that there is inside is called to minus 269 degrees C using liquid helium. What, and what year is this? So this is 1960s. Whoa. I love this. That's some like extreme refrigeration. So back to the story. Penzias and Wilson, they want to use this radio telescope to peer into distant galaxies. Um, so they've gotten their hands on this, which was used for something else. And they're just like, oh, this is ours now. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, totally. They've like, like commandeered it. We're going to use it for this other thing. Yeah. But whenever they peer into the distant galaxies, they pick up this noise, this like weird noise. It's a hundred times more intense than anything that they actually expected to hear. Whoa. It's just static, right? Yeah. It's just an annoying... Big whoosh. Yeah. Actually, it kind of sounds like a white noise machine. So one of their ideas is that it could be coming from New York City. So they point the antenna in the direction of NYC and... Nope, it's not that. What else could it be? Uh, obviously, you know, if the antenna is not perfect, uh, if, if it has uh, some material on it that changes its uh, uh, reflectivity and absorption uh, properties, then it could introduce uh, some noise. And, and uh, they checked for pigeon poop. Uh, in that context. Basically, there's this weird noise. We don't know what it is. We didn't expect it. Maybe it's New York City. Maybe it's pigeon poop. Maybe our thing isn't working right. What is this? I love this so much. I did history of science as uh, as my university uh, major. Love it. And, and I remember this story about the the pigeon poo. And then I read <laughs> in Wilson's account that they got up, they got out a ladder and they scurry up the ladder. And these two, right, they're, they're scrubbing the pigeon poo off from the inside of the horn. They're committed. Then they obviously go back down 
turn it on and the static is still there. Yeah, that wouldn't feel good. How annoying. Spend your day scrubbing this gigantic telescope and it makes no difference. They also thought that it could be from the 1962 above ground nuclear test. Oh, yeah. Which makes sense, right? Big load of radiation burst. So they wait for a year because they think, oh, well, it's going to slowly decrease. So if we just bide our time, keep our ear to this static, we'll see it it kind of dies out. Nope. (laughs) Nope. Still there. After a year of being like, ah, when they figure it out, that's the most exciting bit of this whole story. First, though, we need to go back 50 years (gasps) so I can kind of set the scene. Before that, it's time, as they say in the game shows, for the commercial break. Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. Uh, this is the story of Wilson and Penzias and a noise that they hear. Uh, what that noise is, spoiler alert, <gasps> is going to lead to a huge leap in our understanding of the cosmos. I'm so excited. But first, we need to go back. We need to go back to 1912. Two important discoveries happen in this year that I don't think get the credit that they deserve. And that's one of the things that we're about in this podcast, right? Unsung Absolutely. heroes. I want to introduce you first to uh, Vesto Slifer. Vesto analyzes the light that's coming from distant galaxies, spiral nebulae in uh, in particular, and he produces a spectrum of that light to show what elements are present. And he sees that the lines of this spectrum are redder than they expect. And he realizes that this is due to something called the Doppler shift, which tells us what's happening to those galaxies. <gasps> Doppler as in like the Doppler effect, like when an ambulance goes by yes. and it sounds different exactly. far away exactly than when you're that. close to it. Why yeah. is, why, what, how does it work? Let's ask Avi that exact question. Good job, Marin. Yes. When we hear uh, the siren of an ambulance, we can see that the pitch is changing as the ambulance is passing near us. The frequency of the sound waves is higher when the ambulance is approaching us compared to when it's receding away from us. And the same thing applies not just to sound waves, but to any types of waves that are emitted by a source, including electromagnetic waves. And so if uh, a galaxy is approaching us, the light is shifted to the blue. It, uh, we hear, we, we can see higher frequencies of that light. And when a galaxy is receding away from us, it's shifted to the red. So I, I kind of think of it as uh, the waves get bunched up together if it's coming mm. towards you uh, and the waves kind of spread out the equivalent if it's going away from you. Yeah, yeah. So it, therefore, if it's shifting to the red, that suggests, and this is what Slifer realizes, that the galaxies are therefore moving away from Earth. <gasps> Now, this, so that's, that's huge. The universe is expanding? Well, you don't necessarily know if it's expanding. You just know that all these galaxies are moving away so mm. away from you. Is, is mm-hmm. the whole universe expanding? Like perspective is important there. But also, this is 1912. I had no idea that we had this, this technology available at 1912. I mean, you're thinking about like cosmology and astronomy and things like that. And I'm thinking we have this tech, you know, I don't know. 20th centuries. What they can't do yet, though, in 1912, is they can't calculate how far away those galaxies mm. are. And um, that's the work of another brilliant mind in the same year, 1912, who deserves some more attention uh, or some limelight. Oh, I should have said limelight. That would have been a really clever, clever plan. Anyway, this is Henrietta Levitt. Yes, so. Henrietta Leavitt was uh, one of the computers, uh, those women that were hired at the Harvard College Observatory to look at photographic plates and measure the brightness of stars. And she discovered something extremely important. Uh, She looked at a a group of stars that are roughly at the same distance uh, at the Large Magellanic Cloud and noticed that they changed their brightness. But 
In fact, the period over which the brightness changes relates to how bright they are. And so, in principle, if one measures the period, one can infer the intrinsic brightness of those stars. And just like a light bulb, if you know how many watts it emits, uh, and you see how bright it is, you can tell how far away from us it is. So these are known as variable stars, stars whose brightness dims and comes back. Uh, and Levitt actually discovers 2,400 of these variable stars. Oh my, by hand. That's about also. half of the known variable stars in her day. So she's responsible for 50% of the stars that were discovered in this the variable, the ones. variable, yeah. variable stars. That's amazing. And I feel like not a lot of people actually know that, that the first, like we refer to computers today as our laptop, mm -hmm, right? But mm -hmm. a computer in 1912 is a human being, yep. usually a woman, yep. performing calculations by hand. Yeah. Amazing. Instrumental in so much scientific discovery. That's incredible. So uh, so you've got Vesta Slipher working out that the, the nebula is moving away from us. These okay. galaxies are, are moving away from us. And Data you've got, point one. You've got Levitt, who's figured out a way to actually measure the distance to those stars. Amazing. But it takes another 10 years, just over 10 years, before someone jumps that idea forwards again. And that person is Edwin Hubble. Oh! <gasps> You might have heard of, uh, Sounds familiar. of, of him. Yeah, Hubble Telescope. Right. There's his name. So 1929, Hubble is at the Mount Wilson Observatory in California uh, and is using Levitt's way of measuring distances, building on Slipher's discovery of redshift. And he realises that how galaxies are redshifted depends on how far away they are. And when he plotted the recession speed as a function of distance, he realised that there is a linear relation, that in fact the more distant galaxies are receding faster uh, from us. And he announces this in 1929. This is Hubble? Uh, yeah. And this leads to one of the biggest shifts. <laughs> Excuse me, no, that wasn't deliberate. <laughs> your face when that came out of your mouth, you were like, oh no. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's one of the biggest shifts uh, in how we view the world. Because what he's saying, right, is that our galaxy, well not our galaxy, our universe isn't stable. It is changing. And that leads to a massive debate, which I'm going to mention in a second. First, though, I would like to shout out two other people that I happened across in Ready? my research, um, who also, it looks to me like they suggested the universe was expanding before Hubble did. But Hubble gets right? all the credit. Someone who normally comes into the story later, I'm going to bring back, is uh, Georges Lemaitre, Lemaitre. Okay. Who in 1927, that's the year he gets his PhD from MIT, two years before Hubble announces, Lemaitre actually calculates that the universe must be expanding in all directions equally. But it was just it was just a theory in essence. He didn't have any data to back it up, so people just kind of ignored it. Huh. And then there was someone before him who I also think should kind of take a bit of credit. It's a Soviet scientist called Alexandra Friedman a few years earlier. Anyway, so Hubble wow. doesn't know of Lemaitre or Friedman's work, apparently. But after Hubble announces that the universe is expanding and he has the data to demonstrate it, Lemaitre then uses Hubble's discovery as evidence for his own theory. And then, and this is the point that Lemaitre normally appears in this story, he says that if all galaxies are moving away from each other, then we could run the clock backwards. They must all be expanding out from somewhere. And that's what he calls, and I quote, a primordial atom which contains all the matter in the universe. Casual, that's fine. Yeah, Not or primeval, my, I saw it written in some places as well. brain How? at all. Oh, this is so this is So, so I mean, can you imagine being around at that time when that idea comes out? Like, I, when this very first thought that everything in the universe existed inside an atom 
when that is is on the scene, I mean, I feel like you would just I would freak out. All of these things are coming together. All, all of the the observations that you've mentioned so far. Yeah. Now, Lemaitre starts thinking, what could this primordial atom be like? How did it all begin? Um, let's hear from Avi again. Georges Lemaitre was a Jesuit Belgian Catholic priest, mathematician, astronomer, and professor of physics at the Catholic University of, of Louvain. And he was the first to recognize the fact that perhaps Hubble's uh, observations imply that the universe is expanding. It took him a while to convince people of that notion, including Einstein, who was unclear at the time about how to interpret uh, Hubble's expansion. But uh, also Einstein early on preferred to believe that the universe is not expanding, it's static. And he invented the cosmological constant that would balance the force of gravity and keep the universe uh, steady. Because philosophically speaking, it's much more appealing to have a universe that never changes rather than one that started at the given point in time. Because then one asks, what happened before the Big Bang? Exactly. Uh, what a what talk about a brain melder. Yeah. I mean, we we approach we we come out of astrophysics at that point and come into philosophy mm-hmm. <laughs> almost and theology, quite of often. course. Yeah. And so wait, okay, so so Einstein's around, and there's before all of this, there, there's this prevailing theory that the universe just is. It's static. It's mm, exactly it's steady state. Steady state. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, Unchanging forever. And then there's this sort of revolution, it sounds like, mm-hmm. in this idea that, no, the universe is constantly changing and has been since its beginning, and mm. there's an evolution happening, like the universe is evolving. And then it came from somewhere, right. this primordial primeval atom, um, or a Big Bang, oh, you could say. is that the title of this episode? Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that phrase, Big Bang, actually comes from a critic of the idea. It comes from the English astronomer Fred Hoyle. Um, in March uh, the 28th, 1949, he critiqued this idea and he says, I quote, all matter of the universe was created in one big bang at a particular time in the remote past. So he's kind of critiquing it. He's like, yeah, as if that's the case. But that idea, the Big Bang, stuck. Oh, that's funny. So he's kind of like sarcastically being like, yeah, right, Big Bang. Yeah. And, and now go, that's what, what we call I it. I like that. <laughs> I like that. What eventually shows the scientific community that it wasn't a steady state is what Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson realise that they're hearing in the 1960s. Before we get back to them, though, let's introduce, I guess, the science of the Big Bang. So if we extrapolate the expansion of the universe back in time, we realise that there was a point in time when the density of matter uh, was infinite. But it's, it was not infinite at a point. It was infinite everywhere. And that is not often understood. And the analogy is with a rising cake uh, that is full of raisins. So imagine a very large cake that has a lot of raisins in it. And as it rises, the raisins recede away from each other. That's similar to the expansion of space in the universe, where galaxies represent the raisins and they're receding away from each other even though they're not actually moving in their own frame, the expansion of space and time uh, is causing them to to recede away from each other. And um, that is true everywhere. So if you look at um, nearby raisins in a given part of the cake, they are receding away from each other. And if you look at another part of the cake, the same thing happens. Uh, there is no center from where every all the raisins are receding. They are receding everywhere the same way from each other. And that 
applies also to galaxies in the real universe. There is no center to the universe. We don't know if there is an edge to this region uh, where the conditions are similar. Uh, all we can tell is that within the region that we can see, the conditions are similar and matter is expanding in the same fashion everywhere. Any analogy that involves cake gets my vote. Same. I'm hungry now. I'm only ever going to think of the universe as a big cake now. I love that. Full of raisins. Are, are, are we wearing a raisin? Our galaxy is a raisin? Mm, tasty raisin. Oh, I'm into it. So the Big Bang is the birth of the observable universe. It's, cake, it's an explosion of space. Of space, not into space. And actually, there's a cosmologist from Princeton, Paul Steinhardt, that says a better term for it would be the big stretch which I'm totally on board with. The Maitre realised something else, something huge, that if there was a big explosion of space and time, then the echo of that would still be around. Early on, the universe was hot and dense, filled with radiation. It was thousands of degrees, very hot, inhospitable for life. Clearly, life as we know it, planets, stars, could not have existed back then. It was just... Uh, the universe itself was very dense and hot, and it expanded since then. And as it expanded 400,000 years after the Big Bang, it became transparent to this radiation. Before that, the radiation was trapped, and you couldn't look through the universe. It was opaque. So as the radiation cools, photons can flow through space. And then it keeps cooling, keeps cooling. And as it does, it loses energy. Mm -hmm. So the waves of energy shorten, mm. right? And that radiation cools eventually to waves that are about 10 centimetres to a millimetre as, as their wavelengths, gaps between the peaks. Those are microwaves. So as the radiation cools, uh, photons can then flow through space uh, and it keeps cooling. And as it does so, it loses energy. So the waves of energy actually get bigger. So that radiation cools to it's about 10 centimetres a millimetre wavelength, that's microwaves. Then it cools even further and you get waves that grow to about a metre or even, even a kilometre or even hundreds of kilometres. They are radio waves. Oh, so as our cake cools, the radiation that it's... That is, it's emitting, the radiation that's flowing through it... Through it, yes. ...gets flowing through it is getting longer and longer in wavelength. Yeah, it's cooling down. Just like mm -hmm. our cake would eventually right. cool down if you left it, yeah. like on the side to kind of cool down. Hey, his analogy really works. I love it. Works. It. it works. Um, so you've basically got this, these radio waves hanging around. And that is the cosmic microwave background left over from the Big Bang. It has been permeating the universe ever since the Big Bang. And eventually it reaches Penzias and Wilson. Oh, the boys with their big horn. <laughs> so what's the static? Is it microwave cosmic background radiation? Oh, there it is. <laughs> MCB yes. for yeah. the win. So it's the cosmic microwave background radiation. And microwave is like, okay, you think of your microwave in your house, mm -hmm. but it, that's just because it's the wavelength of radiation that is being emitted is the same one that like your microwave uses? Yeah, and no, I just said that basically it cooled to the point of them being radio waves, mm -hmm. right? But mm -hmm. quite often people talk about kind of microwaves, radio waves in the same sort of oh, family okay. um, that radio waves could just 
just be extra long microwaves, <laughs> but you could call them radio waves. <laughs> so yeah, so in your microwave itself, the microwave, the wavelength is oh. like, it's around kind of 10-ish centimetres. And that microwave moving through the food stuff that you've put in there kind of makes the, the atoms jiggle around. I'm doing a dance here. Uh, and <laughs> he's that, jiggling, he's and jiggling. And them up. Okay? okay. But if that cools even further, they, mm. they grow, they get even bigger. And essentially, as we said, they're now radio waves and mm. they are, it sounded like static and they're picking it up on their radio antenna and they are literally hearing the echo of the birth of the universe. Oh my God. What was it like when they, when they realized this? Like, do they have this moment of realization that they're like, we're literally listening to the birth of the universe? So at a 50th anniversary celebration of the discovery um, that was held at Bell Labs, Penzias stands up and he says, having discovered this, it's as close to being religious as I could be. <laughs> I mean, we were talking about when you're talking about the birth of the universe. I mean, that is not only a scientific or a physics thing. That is a spiritual moment. Mm. And it just has so many implications. Yeah, of what came before. Like, yeah, of home. Like, what is home? What's this nature of this fabric of this universe that we're living in? What's (gasps) happening to it? Um, But let's let's not get carried away. Because in the early 1960s, they haven't yet actually made that realisation. Oh, okay. So, so, so we have. We've realised that that's what they're hearing. In right? 60 kilometres away at Princeton University, uh, there's a team that has been thinking about the Big Bang. And they have hit on this idea that perhaps there could be some microwave radiation still hanging around. And they're planning to look to the skies to try to hear it. The team is led by Robert Dickey. Uh, and it includes a guy... Don't Sorry. laugh, you child. <laughs> I just like him. I mean, do you think people called him Dickie? Because that'd be fun. Well, that was his name. <laughs> and the team includes a guy called Jim Peebles. Mm. Does that get the same response? See, I no, mean, no. the names, come on, Peebles. So one story goes that um, Penzias hears from a friend. How did Penzias not make you giggle, by the way? It's probably yeah, Penzias. It's probably Penzias, but I just like saying <laughs> Penzias. So one story goes that Penzias kind of hears from a friend about a paper that Peebles Oh in my Princeton. God, wait, say that again 10 times fast. Penzias hears say? from a friend about a paper Penzias that Peebles wrote. hears from a friend about a paper that Peebles is about to publish. Uh, and, and the paper is talking about this background radiation. And then Penzias and Wilson go... OMG, that's what it is, oh. right? That's, that's how one story goes. Okay. Regardless, Legend. they ring up Dickie, who turns to his fellow researchers and apparently says, we've been scooped. <gasps> Penzias invites Dickie and Peebles and the team to Bell Labs okay. and they listen to that background noise and they all conclude that yes, indeed, it is Aww. the signature of the Big Bang. That was nice of them. Was, they invited them over. Mm. Have a listen to the birth of the universe. And then what's also lovely is they jointly publish. Ah, oh, that is great. So, so they weren't scooped. They all got to do it together. Uh, in the literature. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Who actually kind of makes that connection first or whatever. Yeah. Wilson and Penzias write a pepper at uh, Write a paper. <laughs> See the piece. They write a paper uh, all about their measurements, and Robert Dickey writes a paper about the theory. Okay. So that's how they kind of divvy it up. Two really interesting things that I want to share with you about this. Okay, number one. Interestingly, Robert Wilson mm. had apparently trained in steady state theory. So this idea that the universe is eternal, there's no beginning, there's no end, there's no expansion. So he's essentially publishing something that supports the notion that it is expanding Mm -hmm. and that you're hearing the radiation that's cooled as it expanded. So when they publish, they just opt, they just just stick to the facts, right? Because he's been trained in steady state. Mm -hmm. So he's probably a bit like... Ah, shucks. Controversial. (laughs) Number two, apparently in the 1950s, the study of the early universe 
is regarded as not the sort of thing to which a respectable scientist would actually devote their time to. Well, is that written down somewhere? Um, I, again, this is just kind of uh, stories I, Wait, that I read. why? I mean, that because quickly changes. Because it's so boundary pushing? Because it's so connected to like where we all come from and... And I don't really know. Maybe it's because they're like, it's such a long way back, although they didn't, I'm going to get to how long, mm. <laughs> how long back that is. But maybe they just thought, no, nah, you should be dealing with the here and the now, what we can actually oh. look out and see through telescopes, et cetera, et cetera, yeah, not looking back. Changed. Um, oh, it quickly changes. <laughs> After they publish, it really quickly changes, especially when 10 years later, 1978, that would be, uh, Wilson and Penzias win the Nobel Prize for Physics. Oh, casual. There's a name, name missing there. Uh, the Peebles and Dicky and Dicky. Neither of them are accredited. They're left out in the Nobel Prize. Are they? Are they sore about that? Are it was they... Peebles's paper which inspired oh, the boys to realise that that noise, that noise, that noise <laughs> uh, to realise that that noise was the CMB. Wait, so but why? Like, how how did they get left out? Does the Nobel Prize committee just say up yours? <laughs> Good job this isn't videoed, this, uh, this podcast with a gesture. And I actually asked Abby about that, so over to him. Well, it's clear that Penzias and Wilson made the actual first discovery, although they didn't intend to find it. I think the Nobel Committee was right in awarding it to the people that discovered the radiation because it's an observational result. Of course, at the same time, both uh, Peebles and Dickey uh, deserved the Nobel Prize for many other things that they did uh, around the same time. But I think the fact that it was awarded to the people who found it uh, was justified at the time. Ah, so Avi's got a got a perspective on it. But that's see, I I pick up on one of the things he said. Like the boys with the telescope horn are yeah, obviously they are the ones who noticed it observationally. But it was on accident, and this whole idea, the theory behind it, goes to these comes from these two guys who are left out. I think this comes up in quite a few of our stories, actually, kind of who gets attributed oh, and who gets the award. And it's always just a really interesting discussion. It's always really interesting to ask the expert. But mm-hmm. Avi was kind of, he was kind of cool with it, right? He was kind of cool with it. So this work leads to a huge paradigm shift, right? It's called one of the centerpieces of cosmology. And it's worth noticing that some people on the committee did have lingering thoughts about the fact that Peebles and Dickey didn't get the Nobel Prize. And actually last year, 2019, Jim Peebles was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics. Is he still for the he theoretical still alive? discoveries in physical cosmology. Is he alive to receive it? Yes. Oh. Yeah, he was. Oh, finally. 83 last year he would have oh, been. Oh, the arc of history tends towards justice. <laughs> Is that what they say? Love that. <laughs> Good. I'm very glad he finally got the prize. So this is actually where I'm going to leave the story of Penzias and Wilson. And what we like to do on this podcast is we like to then move on at the end to what we still don't know. That is going to come up after the break. We're back. This is surprisingly brilliant. We've been talking about the Big Bang, the cosmic microwave background radiation. Um, we've kind of gone all the way through the story. And now we're on to the next bit, the what we don't know or some big questions that were kind of thrown off uh, off the topic. And here is a question for you, Maren Hunsberger. Ooh, I'm ready. How old is the universe? Oh my God. I have 
no idea. That's cool. I'm you're a, a, you're biologist, a biologist, That's Greg. Cool. I, did the, I did the physics and <laughs> chemistry things. Not necessarily the astronomical things, but, but hey. Billions of years? Billions of years is right. Ah, uh, yeah. Do you know that from Brian Cox? <laughs> billions and billions. Oh, you know, I should. I should, actually. I, I should. I, know um, that. I have the pleasure of working with Brian quite a lot. And oh. whenever he says words like that, I'm just always like casual <laughs> name chuckling. drop. Yeah, drop. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, Greg. Worked with Brian Cox. What are you doing here with me? <laughs> He's a British science communicator. And, you know, us, us kind of British science communicators hang together. Right. So, age of the universe. When you know that the universe is, you know, we talked about this, when you know that the universe is expanding, you can play that take back and work out how long it's taken. And, a little rewind. And the figure that I see quoted everywhere now is 13.8 billion years. I did a TV show in 2010 and it was all about the Big Bang mm. and uh, and this kind of story, really. And throughout it, I said 13.7 <gasps> billion years. So we've discovered another 0.1 billion <laughs> years somewhere so, in there. So I was like, hang on, either we were at 13.74999990 and, you know, it's now taken us to, like, you know, 13.75 and you round that up to 13.8, yeah. right? Either that's happened or the estimates have changed. Right. Because we're discovering new stuff all the time because well, we're always making new measurements. I dived into this because I was like, this is really interesting. I need to know. I want, I need, I need to know how old the universe is. <laughs> so I read that in 2013, the European Planck Space Telescope calculated that 13.8 billion year figure. Mm -hmm. Now that was after I'd done the show. So fine, good. That's where we got 13.8 right. billion years from, right? <laughs> but then I read on and I found a study. This was in Science uh, in September last year, 2019. Okay. And it was quoting results from the Max Planck Institute in Germany that suggests that the universe could actually be 11.4 billion years old. Wait, but that's quite a bit younger. Mm -hmm. And then there's uh, Nobel laureate Adam Rees of the Space Telescope Science Institute that's in Baltimore. Uh, and he said, also last year, 2019, he estimated 12.5 to 13 billion what? years old. So we don't know is the answer. This, like, weirdly, this kind of freaked me out a bit. I was like, hang on a minute. Excuse me, guys. <laughs> How old actually is the universe? Just popping in. So I asked Question. Abby. I'm like, hang on, I've got this professor from Harvard. Surely he knows. Here's my chance. Surely. Well, we still have some uncertainty in uh, measuring cosmological parameters, which translate to an uncertain value for the age of the universe. The most reliable method uh, is to use the cosmic microwave background. By measuring the variations in the brightness of the cosmic microwave background, we can infer condi the conditions in the early universe and from that calculate the cosmological parameters in various ways. And what we uh, find is an age for the universe uh, close to 13.8 billion years using the information that is encoded in this Rosetta Stone of the cosmic microwave background. Fantastic. Okay, we have an answer. 13.8. Good, good. I was getting worried there. That was quite a lot of difference. <laughs> um, no, no. I mean, the methods that you make, uh, the 12.5 are not as reliable. Oh, <laughs> a little academic shade there. Okay, so 13.8 is still our most reliable. Yeah. So there's this number. uncertainty in measuring, you know, big cosmological parameters like yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, you would think, I mean, also, let's just like, we, us humans on Earth, tiny, infinitesimal speck in the universe. I mean, we're not that important, Greg. No, we're not. Trying to measure the age of the whole universe. Yeah, no wonder, you know, it's kind of hard. Maybe just a little bit. So what else do we still not know? Um, Avi? So far, we have only a couple of relics from the hot Big Bang. One is the cosmic microwave background. Another is the abundances of elements like hydrogen and helium and lithium that uh, indicates the first few minutes of the universe. But we don't have 
other relics and uh, we can calculate such relics for example there should be a sea of neutrinos these are elementary particles that interact very weakly with ordinary matter that should fill up the universe just like the radiation the cosmic microwave background does uh, we haven't detected it directly yet simply because these particles interact extremely weakly uh, but another type of particles should fill up the universe, another type of radiation, it's gravitational waves. So far, we haven't detected any signal. Hopefully, at some point, there would be a detection of the very earliest moments uh, of the universe that would uh, be extremely important because it will give us an indication of how quantum mechanics and gravity uh, uh, interplayed early on. This is one of my favorite things about physics, especially as a biologist I'm coming from somewhere else and looking at this, is that our prevailing understanding of the physics of the universe have this like fundamental mismatch between gravity and our current understanding of quantum physics. Like gravity doesn't fit in our current standard model of particle physics and vice versa. And gravitational waves, this amazing discovery of being able to measure that has gotten us just what one smaller step closer to maybe trying to understand more about gravity and how it fits into our understanding of the universe, which blows my mind. And so he's talking about maybe being able to detect a gravitational wave from the Big Bang. And kind of that that may give us uh, some further ideas about quantum gravity, Whoa. essentially. But I also love um, the, the notion of the sea of neutrinos. This this yeah. this idea that there are neutrinos just kind of like coming through you and yeah, me, coming through all us time, through right the Earth, now, as all we're the time. sat here talking. And it's that that's what makes them so hard to, to detect is mm. that they're like just they, as he says, interact so weakly with everything that it's like, how do you catch a neutrino? Very hard. <laughs> I instantly pictured like you know that scene in Karate Kid where it's like the first <laughs> challenge and he's sat there with the chopsticks and it's like you got to catch a fly. It's that's like, exactly what hunting like, neutrinos. Right. For neutrinos, Future like, physicist. Here, <laughs> go. He's needing a chopstick motion. It's very intent. So finally, I um I decided to put just a just a simple, easy question to uh, to Avi, and it's uh, I was like, hey, uh, what's the fate of our universe? <laughs> yeah, all right, Greg. Easy toss there. I mean, if anybody can answer it, he can. So <laughs> one arrives at uh, the question as to whether the universe will expand forever or eventually reverse its expansion and contract to collapse back uh, to a big crunch. And as of now, we know that the universe is just on the boundary of that threshold, but it will expand forever. How does that make you feel, the realization that we're in a universe that's expanding faster and faster? I personally, uh, I'm very uh, happy about the fact that the universe is accelerating because um, uh, as I grow older, I prefer to have more and more space and uh, not to be in crowded uh, areas. And the fact that we will have an infinite amount of space available to us eventually, ultimately, in the accelerating universe is is very appealing to me. I'll be thinking about the future. <laughs> He's got his eye on a, a nice, big, empty piece of real estate in the universe later on. <laughs> it's not that empty now, but it will be soon. <laughs> just gonna, just gonna buy it well in advance. That's hysterical. Wait, so, so he, uh, Avi, is saying that we know that the universe will now continue expanding. The raisins, if you will, will continue getting farther and farther mm. apart. It's really interesting that we're just on the boundary. Which side we fall as to whether it would crunch or expand so forever. So we still might. Well, he says that currently we're the other side of that threshold and it's going to expand forever. Oh, and so we were like sort of teetering on the edge about whether or not it was going to... Yeah, well, I've heard different theory. You know, there are obviously different theories, but um, different people 
fall on different sides of that line in terms of their answers to that question. Can you imagine spending your life studying this? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Greg's going into it. Yeah, because there is nothing more fundamental than the fundamental nature of the world around us. And there's nothing more fundamental than that, than where it came from and how it's become the here and now and where that's going to go in the future. I can just picture you standing in line at the grocery store being like, but what are we? Really? <laughs> like, how do you go about doing just like your normal day to day life when you're like, I mean, our quantum states are entangled all the time. <laughs> Am I here right now? Who are you? Which part of me is here? <laughs> mm, where is here? Like, it's very difficult to be a, a, a normal interacting human when, when I'm thinking about that. I just get a little too in my head. <laughs> I want to end with something that Abby said when I asked him. I asked him what's the main thing that he takes away from Penzias and Wilson's research. And I love this response. His discovery together with Arno Penzias illustrates how very often nature is much more imaginative than we are. And we stumble across a major uh, revolution or breakthrough in our understanding of the universe just by chance. And To me, it illustrates the fact that as scientists, uh, we should be humble, we should be modest, we should not assume that we know the answer in advance, and we should simply look at the universe, collect data and evidence, and learn about its uh, whereabouts without a prejudice. The minute we have a prejudice, we are very often wrong. So if we approach observations without a prejudice and just learn from what we see in the sky, we would be much better off. I love him. I need to I need to have that printed on my wall and take it into the lab because he's so right about number one, being humbled by the world around you. That's that's my favorite part of being a scientist, is observing these things and going, Oh my God, the world is incredible. And then also how limited we are, not only by our tools, but by our own prejudices kind of you know our own perspectives like i was saying tiny tiny infinitesimal speck in the universe how can we possibly think that we have all of the tools and capacities at our disposal to even really understand the full scope of what's going on we just got to look for answers like avi says i love that this is like inspired you and kind of ended all profound because it did for me. This was such a wonderful one to research. I mean, you can't not, I think, talk about the beginning of the universe without getting a little like, you know, philosophical. And (laughs) I have my hand on my heart right now. It just makes me feel so, yeah, connected to the past, the future. To you, Greg. (laughs) (laughs) If you enjoyed this podcast, please do rate and review us wherever you get your pods. We will be back next time with another story of something surprisingly brilliant from science history. Uh, A huge thanks then again to today's expert, Professor Avi Loeb from uh, Harvard University. Absolute pleasure to speak to him. And of course, thank you, Marin. Um, If you'd like to follow her on the socials, she is uh, at Marin Beatrice on Twitter and at Marin B, B B-E-A, on the Instagrams. Thank you so much, Greg. It was a pleasure to hear you tell this story. I had a great time. This is uh, Greg Foote, my excellent co-host. He's at Greg Foote on all of the social media platforms. Surprisingly Brilliant is a podcast from Seeker. Today's episode was researched, written and produced by me, Greg Foote. It was listened to and enjoyed by me, Marin Hunsberger. And our expert producer was Emily Feld. Our editor was Jeremy Schmidt. Our studio engineer was Ariella Markowitz. Our our (laughs) surprising producer, (laughs) our supervising producer was David Zwick. And our excellent executive producers are Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner and Mangesh Hadakudur. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. Bye.